Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features John McLean. John serves as a portfolio manager for Brandywine Global's high yield and corporate credit strategies. He was kind enough to agree to be my first real credit guest. I hope that I have done him justice by asking good questions. Brandywine Global is very legit. Morningstar gives the high yield fund five stars. They assign above average ratings for process and people. In the words of Morningstar, the strategy's distinctive value-oriented approach exploits price inefficiencies that often materialize across smaller high-yield issuers. It earns an above-average process rating. Co-managers Bill Zox and John McLean execute a disciplined value approach. They buy issues when their market prices are lower than the team's estimate of intrinsic business value and sell them when their initial thesis is played out or when there are better opportunities in the market. I have gotten to know Bill and John a little bit. I think that they're both uh, good people, and I really appreciate them coming on. Again, I tried to frame some of the conversation so that people that are not totally familiar with credit would be able to follow along. I hope I did a good job. John's got an open invite uh, whenever he wants it, should you all want more detailed credit questions. This episode is sponsored by Stratosphere.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. Stratosphere is a web-based terminal that has financial data, KPIs, links to filings, hedge fund letters, etc. My mind is blown by the fact that this offering has a free offering. There are paid offerings as well. Should you decide to sign up for one of those, please use the promo code BREW for a 15% off discount. But today I was using the fundamental charting feature. I was comparing Paramount and Disney's financial results. I find the data visualizations to be very helpful. I could go on, but I think that the easiest thing for you to do is to head over to stratosphere.io for your free trial, test it out, see what you think. The founder, Braden, is a younger guy. I like him a lot, and I'm happy to have them as a sponsor. Again, that's stratosphere.io. And uh, use the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W, for 15% off of any of the paid products. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Enjoy the show. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled to be joined by John McLean of Brandywine Global today. John, thank you for joining. I've been wanting to have a credit conversation for a while and fortunate to be introduced to you. And I've enjoyed getting to know you over the process. So uh, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. And for the first time in forever, fixed income isn't boring. So hopefully uh, we'll keep your audience awake here. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We're coming through a period where I said to myself, right? I was like, well, let's see. In fixed income, I get no yield and no covenant protection. So why would I want it? Turns out probably short duration treasuries weren't a horrible bet. But now I'm looking around and I see actual yield and it looks like spreads are widening a little bit. And I'm happy to have somebody uh, that knows what they're talking about on the program to educate people. Yeah, I mean, we would agree with you going into the end of 2021, high yield was yielding less than four and a half percent. And now you can get that in a one year treasury. So we've certainly come a long way in less than a year's time. And I believe that what we're seeing now is this regime change from global central banks 
acting like helicopter parents where they really had the training wheels on the marketplace. And anytime we would run into an issue, central banks would come in and clean up the mess. And now we're in a position where globally we're fighting inflation. Those training wheels are off and your kid's going down a hill 100 miles an hour without a helmet on. And so it's a very interesting time in the marketplace. And to your point, now we're seeing opportunity across asset classes, across geographies, and it's really getting the time to focus on just the best ideas because there are so many ideas in the market. So a lot of my listening base is equity focused, I would surmise, given what I tend to talk about. So can we just sort of break down for equity folks, just like very basic credit, you've got obviously where the treasuries trade, then you've got a spread to compensate you for credit risk. And then typically what you get a little bit more for taking a duration, right? So longer dated bonds should yield a little bit more. Is, is that like a fair characterization just from a super, super high level of how to think about bonds in general? Yeah. So at the highest level, you have the risk-free rate, which is the government security. In most markets, you have a steepening curve, meaning as you go out in terms of lending, so lending to a government or a company for five years requires one rate of compensation versus 10 years. And typically, the longer that you lend, the more you want to compensate you for interest rate risk and for corporate risk. And so when we're thinking about the compensation that we need to be required for lending to a business, we start with the risk-free rate, the treasury. And then, as you said, we build up a discount rate. We build up this required rate of return. And it's a function of the credit rating of a business, the size of a business, the quality of the management team, the cash flows, the durability of those cash flows. And then what we're also looking at is the bond shell itself. And so there is value in the shell of the security. And every security is somewhat different. This is uh, one of the differences between fixed income and equities. If you want to own Bank of America, there's one equity and there's probably a thousand different bonds and they have different places in the seniority within the capital stock. You have higher coupon bonds, lower coupon, longer duration, shorter duration, larger size, smaller size issued in a plethora of currencies and with different covenants. So as you mentioned, all of these things go into determining the price of a security from our vantage point. And when you talk about the bond shell, you're talking about the provisions that are in a bond indenture, like you're talking about the actual contract. Is that fair? Exactly. And it's also, again, the stated coupon, whether there's any variability in that coupon, some notes float over a period of time, some notes have coupon step-ups, depending on credit quality and ratings downgrades, the size of the underlying security, is it in an index? There's a lot of technical issues in the fixed income marketplace that if you're able to be somewhat small and nimble, you're able to exploit. And they are not really risks. You get paid for illiquidity discounts in the marketplace, even when you're dealing with issue sizes in the hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on what index it's in. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to give you a softball question here, but indexing makes so much sense to me for equities, because like you said, an equity is an equity is an equity, right? It's just sort of a vanilla security. 
but each bond can be so different. And I have a strong sense that active management in bonds or, you know, with debt markets makes a ton of sense because it requires thought and reading through, you know, where do you want to play in the capital structure? Which bond should I own? I get very nervous about the idea of owning a bond index. Is that a correct fear that I have? Yes, it is. Everything that works for equities works against fixed income in terms of indexing. And particularly when we get into the more esoteric and less liquid markets, something like high yield, emerging market, corporates, leveraged loans, convertible securities, things of that nature. What you see is that the ETFs, so the passive vehicles, have higher fees relative to what we see in equity. So you can go buy DOO or SPY at a couple basis points, and active managers may charge you 50 to 100 basis points for large cap. In high yield, what you're looking at with the largest ETFs, J&J and HYG, are management fees in the 40, 45 basis point type of range versus active management more in the 50 to 75, 80 basis points. So you're not getting a real discount here. Oh, interesting. So that management fee spread is that tight? Yes. I did not realize that. Interesting. And then it goes to your point about index construction, right? So we talk about all of the inefficiencies in our marketplace, and there are many, but index construction is certainly one of those things. So if you think about a market capitalization weighted index for equities, well, you're going to be dominated by companies like Apple, Amazon, J&J. These are businesses that have wide moats, durable cash flows. They've created a lot of shareholder value. If you look at fixed income, and particularly in high yield, the biggest weights in the index are simply the companies that borrow the most money. Yep. So a lot of times you're dealing with the number three or number four player in a marketplace. If you look at one of the largest weights in our index right now, it's Ford. And Ford is fine, but it's not the number one car company by any means. And then if you think about how these ETFs work, they actually, with JNK and HYG, replicate a very liquid subsegment of indices. And this is an interesting nuance as well, because our market's about $1.2 trillion in size in the US. So it's less than half the size of the Russell 2K. You have roughly a thousand issuers or companies, roughly 2,000 bonds. So in some ways, it's far less liquid. But the marketplace is dominated by large market participants, asset managers that run 20, 50, 100 billion dollars in this space. You're too large to add value. And really what you're doing here is beta replicating and what you want are very liquid securities that you're able to trade to handle inflows and outflows as an example, to be able to quickly reposition your portfolio due to changing macro or microeconomic types of conditions. And therefore, this bond shell of very liquid instruments that the largest issuers issue is persistently overvalued because the buy side is willing to pay up for liquidity because there is no capacity discipline in our marketplace as well. So interesting. Is that so when issued or is that a secondary market issue? So like if I'm AT&T, do I get a discount simply because I'm providing so much liquidity to the market? Typically, yes, typically. Huh, interesting. And that's the issue with our marketplace relative to equities as well, is so that we have this stated coupon and final maturity. So if you don't default, 
when you're issued at a rich valuation because you're liquid, you never collapse that. And so from our vantage point, what we want to do is take advantage of parts of the market where either the largest asset managers can't compete because they're too big to own some of these securities in any type of meaningful size for their portfolios or where we feel like there are less sets of eyes. So we have that micro to mid cap type of bias that your equity listeners would relate to. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just going to do one more basic thing for some listeners that may not know. When I was underwriting credit at the bank, I mean, the things that we would look at is if we were to take a loss, you look at the probability default. uh, Well, this is how we would reserve capital, but the probabilities of default, your exposure at default, and then your loss given default is kind of how we looked at stuff. So I would suspect that the world that you live in looks at things a similar way. Is that true? Yes, it is. And so that's an interesting point as well. And it's one of these issues that junk bonds, high yield debt, which is the market that I live in, yeah, has a branding issue. You know, in fact, we should really be called limited duration instead of speculative credit, because if you think about our marketplace, it's really evolved from the era of Michael Milken in the 1980s when you're lending to really small kind of squirrely types of entities at very high leverage levels with very low credit ratings. What we've seen is a migration of credit quality, particularly from pre-GFC to today. So double Bs, which are the highest ranking junk bonds, again, kind of an oxymoron there, highest rating of the low quality, but they're north of 50% of the marketplace today. They're about 52% of the market. They were about 38% pre-GFC. The last time that double Bs defaulted at north of 1% per annum was 2002. Hmm. It's been 20 years since we've seen any meaningful defaults in that part of the market. It's the largest part of the market. Hmm. Single Bs, which would indicate lower credit quality, are about 40% of the market. And the last time that they defaulted at north of 4% was in 2009. And then triple Cs are what people typically think of in terms of speculative credit. That's the lowest credit rating, high probability of default. Now, these types of companies will default at a pretty high frequency rate, typically somewhere between 20 on the low end and 45% on the high end. But that's only 10% of our market at this point in time. Really, the excesses of lending have gone into our sister markets, the leveraged loan and private credit markets that also fill up the pie of below investment grade. High yield has really become much more of a professional marketplace. And when you think about the businesses that permeate, I mentioned Ford as an example, but you can't go more than a couple of hours in your day-to-day life without running into a high yield company, whether you're taking a flight on American or Delta or United, or whether you're going to a big box retailer like Macy's or Nordstrom's, we interact with high yield businesses on a daily basis. All right. I have two thoughts. So I'll start with the first. The default rate since 2002 of double Bs, how much of that do you think can be attributable to an environment where refinancing risk was substantially reduced due to what the Fed has been doing? Oh, it's certainly a portion of it. But I think that, again, companies are just better run in terms of making sure that they're not going to default today than they were in 2002. And it's an iterative process. So basically what happened during the GFC 
particularly in high yield, was the typical cap stack of a high yield issuer in 2006, 2007 was to have one or two bonds and effectively having balloon payments and not refinancing until you got somewhat close to the final maturity, which meant within a year or two before the final maturity. And so what we saw was uh, liquidity crunch and capital markets be closed. The capital markets were actually only closed for about nine months, which is the longest period of time for the high yield marketplace during the GFC. So companies that defaulted at that point in time had these balloon final maturity payments and didn't have access to capital. We learned from that. Corporate CFOs learned a lot going through the GFC. And so what we've seen now is a layering out of maturities, a diversification of lending sources. So you don't just borrow in the high yield bond market if you're a below investment grade company, you borrow in the leveraged loan market, you borrow in the convertible securities market. So you also typically are borrowing not only in the US market, but in the European or other foreign markets. So you have plenty of diverse sources of capital. And so that diversification of capital base has really helped. Recently, you could think about a company like Carnival Cruise, which has done several debt refinancings over the past couple of months. One was effectively a secured bond deal, and one was a convertible note issuance. So businesses like this, despite having some trouble in the marketplace at this point in time, lack of visibility into forward cash flows and a bloated balance sheet with a lot of debt, they still have access to capital. And so I think that this is a very long-winded way of saying that corporations have drastically improved their businesses, their operating margins, as well as their balance sheets in terms of diversification of sources of liquidity. When you're getting paid back by assets, I think of that as hard assets. And when you're getting paid back by enterprise value or whatever, I think of that as air. So when I ask this question, that's kind of where my head's coming from. Do you have a sense of some uh, of like how much air is under the market in general? Because you talk about like American, right? American's a company that I can't stand from an equity standpoint, but their asset base is something that I would lend to all day long. So I'm just curious how far they've pushed that thought, even if a lot of these companies default. Obviously, you've got to be able to sell the assets to a buyer, but generally, do you have a sense of what the risk of default is, or is that an impossible question to answer? No, I mean, look, so we think about equity market capitalization as our starting margin of safety as debt lenders. Huh, interesting. Okay. Because in theory, right, equity needs to be wiped out before debt takes any type of impairment. I understand that there are some situations where that hasn't necessarily been the case, but the majority of the time, equity needs to be wiped. And so when we're thinking about lending to businesses, we're certainly... And we typically lend to public companies. We do lend to some private enterprises, but with those, we're coming up with a private market valuation. So we're looking at what the equity market ascribes a value to be, and we're making adjustments to things like margins and enterprise value to EBITDA and coming up with our own estimation of our starting margin of safety. Now, when you talk about the airlines, it's really interesting because I think 2020 showed creativity from the CFO suite. The United deal was a thing of beauty. Didn't Goldman put that together? Was that the deal that had all of their aircraft? They sold the mileage program. They they or they didn't sell it. They got lending against it, right? And they set up like a separate entity. 
it was just absolutely a beautiful transaction. I remember looking at it and I was like, this is incredible that financial engineering has really been taken to a, it's very professional now, let's put it that way. Well, and that's a key point in terms of lending right now, and particularly to hard asset types of entities. So when you think of an airline company, you think of airplanes, that market has been growing over a multi-decade period. In fact, when I started my career, I started in distress and I was looking at what are called WTCs, which are effectively pools of aircraft and they're collateralized. That market's evolved over time. And so Americans are frequent issuer in that marketplace. But then lo and behold, 2020, when we're all doing our models with revenue at zero and they need to come up with the ability to plug some of these cash flow gaps, they say, well, yes, we have a mileage program that is extremely profitable. We can borrow at that box. Oh, by the way, we have slots, gates, and routes. And some of those markets like a London Heathrow or a JFK are very valuable. Some other airline would pay us for those slots, gates, and routes. And so we can securitize deals against this. You looked at the cruise line industry, you had companies like Norwegian borrowing against islands. Huh, interesting. So not all collateral is the same. And certainly from my vantage point as a lender, we have to be comfortable with the valuation. What we're seeing in the market today, you've seen companies like Sprint and now Dish come to market and borrow against Spectrum. When you're literally talking about air, that's air. Yeah, that's right. And they're able to borrow against those types of valuations. So I think there's art and science in terms of understanding collateral. But what I think that end investors don't typically understand as well is that there are a lot of different pockets of value within a company that can be carved up and borrowed against in times of stress. So you encumber assets in times of stress like 2020 and 2021. And as the market improves, then you go to refinance secured debt with unsecured debt. And you unencumber those assets to be able to have that ability to use those assets again at a, you know, another challenging point in the market. Well, that's got to bring you to a pretty interesting point, right? Because we've been through 2020 and a fair amount of assets got encumbered to get through liquidity problems. And Lord knows back then no one knew what was going to happen. Now we're potentially looking at a recession. We're looking at a Fed that is less accommodative. It, seems as though we may be entering um, the dawn of an era of opportunity for high yield and debt in general. Yeah. So first of all, I think people have misconstrued a Fed put. The Fed doesn't care about your 401k. The Fed doesn't care about equity prices at all. What the Fed cares about is functioning financial conditions. And that's why they came into the market in March of 2020. You couldn't spot a treasury, meaning you couldn't agree to a price of the biggest, most liquid market in the world during March of 20. And so if you can't price the risk-free security, you can't price anything else, right? Yeah. If the floor is shaking nonstop, the house is going to crumble. And so that's when the Fed comes in. Fed has a dual mandate, but right now unemployment's sub 4%. And inflation's running pretty hot still. Yes, we've seen peak inflation most likely, but it's not going down to 2% anytime soon. So the Fed is not your friend anymore. And there's plenty of investors like myself that really grew up post GFC that haven't seen this type of Fed. The mantra was, don't fight the Fed. Well, guess what? Don't fight the Fed here. And so what is particularly interesting to me is this dynamic 
evaluation between fixed income and equity right now because credit spreads have moved out, but equity risk premiums haven't. And when I'm thinking about doing a DCF, what is your required rate of discount for your cash flows at this point in time? It used to be 9, 10% for a large cap equity type of business when the 10 year treasury is at 1%. Well, we're closer to four now. So does that mean that that required rate is higher? I think yes, but that's somewhat debatable. But if you have equities trading at 18, 19 times forward earnings going into a recession where I do think that we'll see some margin compression, I don't think it'll be to the degree of what we saw in like 2007, 2008, but we will see some margin compression. Then the 60-40 allocation, which was dead and fixed income didn't live up to its duty of being that ballast point in a portfolio, should actually be flipped to 40-60, where you have a lot more fixed income now because duration is defensive in fixed income, but it's offensive or aggressive in equities at this point. And I think that what you're going to see too here is this equity mind shift. What really propped equity markets up for the last decade has been growth. Some of it's speculative, some of it high quality types of businesses, but it's not growth anymore. It's cash flow. And that's a real positive from where I'm sitting as a lender. A uh, company is not going to be lighting money on fire just to deliver McDonald's hamburgers to my doorstep for $5.99. Now the Ubers and Grubhubs and DoorDashes of the world are going to be focused on profitability. And as a lender, I like my companies focused on profitability. And then I also like my companies and my CFOs focused on maintaining a reasonable balance sheet. I'm not one of those lenders that says, hey, you've got to take 100% of your cash flow and pay down debt. But free this year for the last decade, we've had a market that has been fueled by ultra low, plentiful, cheap capital. And corporate CFOs did the right thing. They said, why wouldn't we borrow at three, four, 5% to buy back our stock or to pay meaningful dividends to return capital to shareholders. Now, capital is a lot more expensive and it's a lot more scarce. And so we've seen this mindset shift from companies that I think is really important for your audience to understand. So over the last six months or so, I'll give you a couple of examples. Centene introduced probably what I think to be the first public bond buyback program where they said, not only are we going to be buying back $3 billion of our stock, we're going to be buying back a billion of debt because our debt's trading at $0.85 cents on the dollar and we're a high-quality business that generates pretty predictable, stable cash flows. And why wouldn't we make some money for our shareholders? You look at a company like DeVita, which is a kidney dialysis type of business. It's struggling a bit, but it still generates very healthy cash flow. They have been very aggressive from a share repurchase program over the past decade. On their last earnings call, they said, we're going to focus on debt pay down now because the challenges in our business and also where our debt is trading in the 70s and close to 9% type of yield. We think that's an attractive proposition for our shareholders as well. And I think what you've seen is this lack of understanding of enterprise values, enterprise values, market cap business, the debt and cash. Debt is valued at par, 100 cents on the dollar. So if your debt's trading at 70 cents on the dollar, that means the debt is overstated in terms of the enterprise value of a business and the equity is understated. If you can collapse that, 
And so for a lot of businesses that are generating cash flow, that do have assets that they can encumber to go out and collapse that discount on their debt, they're doing it. And we're seeing it every single day in the marketplace with public companies coming out and announcing bond buybacks in the open market. Yeah, I think I saw Barrick Gold did one. It's interesting, you know, like I follow the Malone entities and just the way that Charter specifically has laddered out the debt, even Curate, Curate offered, they have a bond out there that expires in 2068. Like I haven't looked at what it trades at and maybe that one's not even the right one to think of, but they have some that are in the 2040s. Those things have to be trading at like nothing relative to what they issued them for. So I think going into this period, I learned from studying uh, my perception of Buffett. As I get older, I realize what I think I read was not even what I read. But when I was younger, I took that no debt thing very seriously. And as I worked at the bank, I kind of learned a little bit more and I realized some of the nuance in the statement. And now you look at some of these companies that have leverage, but it's laddered appropriately. And it gives them a lot of tools in this environment to go out and attack discounts in different ways. Like you said, it was just a, a share buyback playbook. And now there's like real opportunity for corporate CFOs to, uh, I don't know, basically be short bonds by issuing a couple of years ago and buying them now. Absolutely. And what an amazing time to do this. We saw record issuance in investment grade and high yield debt securities in 2020 and 2021 at record low rates. So there's a lot of debt outstanding that is very cheap from a dollar price perspective. And so if you're a business that is consistently generating cash flow, why wouldn't you go out and be doing that? And effectively, some of the best capital allocators in the marketplace are in high yield entities. So you could think of a company like Transdime, company like Post, you mentioned Malone and the Liberty entities. I think businesses like this are going to be paying close attention to where their debt is trading and finding creative ways to take advantage of this. And it's actually interesting when you think about, so somebody like Post, who's been extremely shareholder friendly, they've done a couple of interesting transactions this year. One, they did an open market bond tender to take advantage of exactly what we're talking about. But two, they also issued in the convertible bond market to go buy back stocks. So I think this kind of goes to what we're talking about, the diversity uh, funding sources that are available to particularly skilled capital allocators. All right. Can we take a step back on that transaction? So you're issuing in the convertible bond market. And in that market, you're basically short in a way your stock, uh, like if the stock increases to the point where the convertible is actually worth something, then you have to issue equity and you're, it's somewhat dilutionary, correct? It depends on if you hedge out that dilution effect. If you use some of the proceeds to enter into a collar where you in fact aren't really diluting yourself. Wait, wait, wait. How would you enter into that collar? What would uh, the counterparty be promising? Uh, you'd be entering that into with an investment bank. And they would what? They would uh, sell you the shares at a certain price would make sense, right? I'm just trying to think through like what they were thinking about because you're on one hand, you're attacking your debt by buying the open market tender. What you're saying is anyone that's willing to give me whatever the price is on the debt, I will buy as much as you have. And on the other end, they're basically issuing a bond that brings liquidity in that's a source of funds and it's somewhat short their stock, probably not in a big way. 
I'm just thinking about what their internal dialogue is probably saying about like where they think their equity may go versus what they it just strikes me as a very smart transaction is basically what I'm saying, given the headwinds that we may be looking at. Well, it is interesting that Post issued the convert around $93, I believe. And that's kind of where their stock is trading today. Okay, so your options at the money. Your options at the money. The convert's actually trading six points above issuance price because the premium for the conversion price here is relatively limited. How long is the option? Five years in nature. Interesting. The premium was set at 17.5%, which is actually pretty low. So the conversion price is about $106 on post. But from my perspective, to your point about management, that might indicate that they view their stock as somewhat overvalued at that point in time. And their debt is attractive to retire, right? So Exactly. I mean, I don't know. If you give up a little bit of dilution and you shore up your balance sheet and can attack that debt, forget about the result of the transaction. That seems like a smart transaction to me. Yeah. For the first time in a while, maybe it's going to be very interesting. Uh, the corporate finance departments may get to shine. For a while, it was just like issue debt and buyback shares. Now we get to find real creativity. Absolutely. And I think what we've seen too, and energy is a good leaning indicator here, actually, is that in that marketplace, the companies that had underlevered balance sheets came into a market where there were a lot of distressed assets that they could pick up at very attractive prices. And so I think what we're going through right now is a deleveraging cycle. And I think it is this monumental shift. The companies that put themselves in the catbird seat to take advantage of the recession that is coming and the washout in terms of equity prices and in terms of business valuations are going to be in a position to buy quality businesses at low prices and then to come back to the marketplace and issue debt again, probably in a lower interest rate environment. Hmm. If that is correct as a thesis, what an interesting regime change. So you sent me some notes before we started, and I was curious, you said uh, like high yield as a market has never had back-to-back negative years. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it kind of goes to the asset itself. It's a short duration asset because high yield companies typically can't borrow longer than 10 years and typically borrow somewhere in the five to eight year range. They have higher coupons, i.e. high yield. And so the duration's typically in this three and a half to four and a half years. You've got your contractual coupon. You've got your stated final maturity. You've got your kind of default cycle here. And so what we've seen is that it's a self-healing marketplace as well. So in 2008, when the market was particularly challenged, the dollar price of the index traded down rapidly. Hmm. Your coupon doesn't change. So if you have an 8% bond at par, you're getting 8%. And if that price is at 50 cents in the dollar, well, you're earning a 16% yield. So if you started... January 1 of 2009 at 50 cents, then you're actually making 16% in terms of carry, not to mention price appreciation opportunities. And that's one of the things that we're seeing in this marketplace right now with the debt of our asset class trading around 87 cents on the dollar. 
is that there's not only a reasonable carry in the market, meaning your coupon, there's also price appreciation opportunities. So your starting yield, let's say it's roughly 9% right now, and the duration's about four. If we assume nothing happens in treasuries, then credit spreads have to move by about 225 basis points to generate a zero return for next calendar year. If that were to be the case, then spreads are roughly 450, 475 basis points. So now you're talking about 675 to 700 basis points, which is typical in a challenging recessionary type of environment. The dollar price is going to move from 87 cents of the dollar to into the 70s. And we would see a ton of institutional capital flowing into that marketplace because allocators understand that that is a very favorable price and spread to be lending to, particularly as we talked about before, the quality of this marketplace has improved dramatically over the years. The structural seniority in the marketplace has improved dramatically over the years. We don't anticipate seeing capital markets close for any meaningful amount of length and time. There's no maturity wall to be worried about. We have less than 10% of our market coming due through the end of 2024. So there's plenty of time for companies to address maturities either through internally generated cash flow or multiple sources of liquidity. Energy has been one of these headwinds for our asset class in 2015, 2018, and 2020. It's now a meaningful tailwind. Oh, when you're talking about energy, you're talking about the energy companies in your asset class have defaulted and taken away from the yield. Is that what you're referring to? Okay. I didn't, uh, yeah, you weren't talking about energy prices impacting the businesses. Well, I mean, energy prices obviously under, uh, impact the underlying cash flows of our ENP and oil field services, midstream types of entities, but energy is roughly 13% of our index. So it's the largest weighting from a sector component. And what we've seen is this shift in capital allocation priority from corporate CEO, CFOs in energy businesses, dating back to really 2014, 2015, because what you saw was an explosion of the high yield asset class. High yield bottomed at about 400 billion in terms of AUM in 2009, and it got up to about 1.4 trillion through 2014. Wow. So it grew rapidly, but energy as a percentage of the index grew from about 8% to about 15% during that time as well. And so you were able to increase your stock price through debt-fueled M&A in energy businesses during this time frame. And there was a long hangover once the commodity price moved from below $100, where people thought persistently that fracking is this amazing new technology, which we certainly agree it's a valuable technology, but the commodity price can change. And there is zero intrinsic value in these types of commodity businesses. Once that moves lower, the value of the business is impaired. And that certainly was a meaningful headwind to market performance for high yield And the issue there, too, is the recovery value. So if you go into bankruptcy and default when oil is trading at 30 or 40 bucks, the value of your business is particularly low. So lenders recover a pretty low percentage in those types of environments. But if you're lending to, let's say, 
Carnival Cruise, then you're in a first lien position and the value of your debt's $8 billion and the value of the assets as appraised is $28 billion. You feel pretty comfortable that if they were in a bankruptcy type of situation that you would recover 100 cents on the dollar, even stressing out a number of different types of scenarios. So energy, these management teams shifted their allocation from debt fueled M&A to living within cash flow because equity holders told them to do so in 2016, 2017, 2018. And then ESG certainly came into our marketplace and has had a much more profound impact on lending to these types of businesses. And so equity holders are now telling these management teams, you are the new tobacco companies. You don't have access to capital like you used to. You run a commodity type of business. So therefore, you need to delever your business aggressively because of the cyclicality of your earnings. And that's what energy companies have done. So we used to look at most oil E&P companies trading at three, four, five times leverage. Now I own several companies that trade at net cash. They have more cash on their balance sheet than debt, and they still pay you 7 or 8%. And we think that that is a very attractive opportunity. So when I look at your portfolio, I also see some what I would perceive to be very high quality companies. How do you think about the mix of the portfolio of maybe some of these more cyclicals versus some of those maybe better businesses by definition and how you move the portfolio around to lean into one or the other? Well, we always want to take advantage of market inefficiencies. And so we will look at owning typically higher quality types of businesses, but in instances like where we're at today with energy, where balance sheets are meaningfully better than they have been over the past five to seven years and management teams, capital allocation policies jive with what we are looking for, then we're going to allocate more capital to that part of the marketplace because we think the inefficiency in energy is partly driven by ESG, partly driven by most managers really getting decimated in multiple cycles and therefore putting the sector in the permanent doghouse. And so we think that if you're willing to look at today's situation with open eyes, you can certainly pick up a meaningful amount of risk-adjusted yield in that sector. I think what we look to do is identify quality management teams And that, again, would jive much more with your typical equity analysis. But that's because we are the gateway between debt and equity. And that's because we are dealing with some possible amount of bankruptcy risk, particularly as you go down into the triple C part of the marketplace. But we're very adaptable in terms of where we're allocating capital. I would say that our viewpoint today is we're going into a recession And we want to skew higher quality, meaning higher credit quality in our portfolios. But we're willing to look at situations that we think are mispriced. And we will lend to businesses that trade at, quote unquote, distressed levels. If we have confidence in the management team, if we have confidence in the durability of cash flows, our ability to predict the size of and timing of cash flows, 
And we certainly see a number of opportunities in the marketplace with yields in the 15 to 20 to 25% range that we think are mispriced. But we want to take advantage of inefficiencies that we've kind of discussed a little bit here in terms of technicals, whether it might be a lender that's small, off-index, in a sector that's unloved for a variety of reasons. We want to take those types of risks. We want to take headline risk because we think that's particularly mispriced, but we don't want to take risk in the underlying fundamentals of the business. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, especially in a game when your upside is 100 cents on the dollar, right? Because at par, that's what you're getting back. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the interesting dynamics that we see today, and there's several companies and we, we own these businesses, is that you have companies that I think to be our high quality, like a Twilio or Roblox, that don't necessarily generate cash flow X uh, stock-based comp, but they have cash massively in excess of their debt. And they borrowed in a time where now the coupons on their debt are in the threes and you can borrow or you can lend to the government for one year at four and three quarters. So they're in a position right now where they have cash and excessive debt and the yield on their short-term riskless securities is above the interest expense that they're paying on their debt. And their debt is, oh, by the way, trading in the 70s and 80s. These companies should be buying back every single bond they could possibly do at this point. Interesting. So you don't think that they should just like say, thank gosh, we got that done and we should keep it outstanding. You think that they should go out and attack the bonds outstanding. I think it's a compelling opportunity for them to, again, improve shareholder returns through debt reduction. And while I might not think that this is of any particular amount of leverage, we know that uh, equity holders are typically focused on that equity leverage, particularly in situations where we're not generating persistent free cash flow Yeah, once you strip out the stock-based comp. Yeah, well, that's one nice thing about uh, credit that equity doesn't get. Uh, any dilution from uh, stock-based comp is actual true free cash flow to debt holders, even though equity gets diluted. From the credit perspective, it doesn't matter. Exactly. You want to share your thoughts on private credit? Because uh, I heard that they haven't had a markdown this year. <laughs> yeah, you know, private credit's one of those very interesting marketplaces because it is opaque. I mean, we have insights into that market. We're not actively involved in the marketplace, but certainly we're paying attention to it because as we talked about prior, with below investment grade, you have high yield bonds, you have leverage lending, you have private credit. And high yield doubled and tripled in size really from 09 to 14. And then we had a hangover in 15 and 18. Leverage loans doubled in size really from 14 to 18. And they doubled in size at that point in time because their floating rate and so everybody was worried about, hey, when's the Fed going to start hiking? And it took a long time and it was pretty slow at that point in time. But a lot of capital came into that marketplace. And then they had a tough end of 2018. And then leveraged loans typically have more structural seniority than high yield bonds and are, have less duration, are supposed to protect capital in down markets better than high yield. And they did not do that in 2020 because that market had shifted very meaningfully. It's lower credit quality at this point. And what we've seen in private credit now is an explosion of growth in terms of assets where depending on what you look at, you're over a trillion dollars at this point in the asset class. And direct lending was not really 
a business during the GFC. So it's not been battle tested at all here. Hmm. And I'm highly skeptical, particularly given when we can go look out at the public BDCs and look at how they're lending and what types of businesses that they're lending to. And I think what you've seen is similar to what happened in bonds and loans. You saw a lot of capital come into the space and chase a limited amount of ideas. And to deploy that capital, you had to acquiesce to borrowers. And instead of getting 12% yield and warrants, which is what you used to get for MES lending in the global financial crisis, you're lending an 8% covenant light to a small widgets manufacturer in Sandusky, Ohio. And so I think that there's certainly a lot of problems there. And in fact, more of the issue is around lending in software and technology. And I think that we're in for a real tech wreck in 2023. We've already seen, certainly in 2022, unprofitable tech get hammered hard. But technology is a big part of private credit on the public BDCs that we looked at on the low end, it's somewhere around 13% of one manager's book. On the high end, it's more like 25%. And with technology, it is a bit of catnip to private equity because you have sticky recurring revenue. You have retention rates you know, in the 90, 95% type of range. You have the ability to price at inflation plus several percentage points. And so you can put a lot of leverage on those types of businesses. But I think what we've seen in software was this proliferation of software during COVID when everybody was working from home. And now as enterprises are going into a recession, they're looking at ways to cut expenses. And you don't need Zoom and Teams and you don't need the marginal enterprise resource software programs, particularly if you have multiple ones going. And so I think there's a bunch of decluttering that's going to have to go on in the software marketplace. And these are businesses that have a lot of leverage on it because of that predictability. So if retention rates go from 95 to 85, and if your ability to price goes from inflation plus 3% to flat to negative, we're going to see a lot of problems and you're going to have to go through a lot of workouts. So I think private credit is going to be sweating a lot of situations in 2023 because you can pretend that there's no markdown during COVID because Delta between Q1 and Q2, the market recovered so quickly that it was fine. But if we're in a prolonged down cycle, which I think we're going to be to a degree, you're not going to be able to say that my public counterpart enterprise is trading at 15% yield and I'm and 70 cents on the dollar or 60 cents on the dollar and I'm holding my loan at par at 9%. Uh, I think there's going to be some real problems there. And again, like what we talked about, private credit, depending on which indice or publication you're tracking, was up high teens, 20% in 2021, and it's down low single digits. At this point, I really struggle with the perceived marks in the space. And I think the other interesting aspect is going to be that as an asset allocator, you have your private and your public markets. And if your public markets have gotten hit, as we have being down you know, in high yield at this point, about 12%, and your private markets are marked 
down a couple percent as you look for incremental dollars to allocate well one you're going to be worried about the marks and two you're going to be topping up the asset classes that have drawn down more severely so i think incremental dollars are going to come into the public sphere and we are also seeing in our marketplace private credit going out and buying public securities as well which is kind of this interesting dynamic because they've raised a ton of capital and that deal flow has slowed down pretty meaningfully in 2022 and we think to be in 2023 so if you see attractive opportunities to generate yields that are in excess of what you've promised your investors and you can do it in the liquid market go deploy that capital currently into our marketplace and as your deal flow picks back up you can sell the more liquid securities and go back into direct lending what are the implications i mean if private credit does have i don't know a hiccup i mean are the lps in private credit or is it do they tend to be a little bit more patient or could there be a scenario where for instance if you get redemptions in private credit it seems to me that it's almost by definition less liquid so what does that do to the market generally like does it create potential i don't want to say panic but like real markdowns because assets might have to trade right well it is really like how patient are your end investors and i think to a degree i think the end investors are going to be pretty patient this is primarily institutional capital that looks at cycles over multi-years so i think there'll be patience there but i don't think incremental dollars are going to be coming into the space I don't think they're going to be going out because of the lockup periods and kind of the structures around that. But I don't think incremental capital is going to be coming in. And so I think really what you're going to see is whether or not the lending standards were as strong as we were led to believe and whether or not these managers have the capability to handle a number of workouts all at the same time. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that that's really going to be the issue is yeah. how much stress does that put on your investment team if you have multiple lending situations going through non-accrual periods? That makes sense. You better be ready to own what you own is uh, what I'm thinking, right? So we'll see. Do you, do you mind talking about uh, your concept of long CEOs, short politicians? Oh, yeah, sure. What we mean by that is Corporate America, at the end of the day, is focused on stakeholders. It's focused on profitability. And I think that we're seeing already that they're going to be proactive on labor force, meaning reduction in labor force, before we go into the recession. We've had this view right over the last three to six months of an economy that's starting to turn. Meanwhile, you're getting record cash flows coming into your business at that point in time. So you have a fortified balance sheet. You continue to get cash flow to come in, and you're going to be focused on managing your business for the long haul because you're paid very handsomely to do so. That's very long credit. Again, what we've seen companies coming into the market, buying back their debt. We've seen meaningful slowdown in M&A activity. So all the things that are shareholder-friendly, but not necessarily debt-holder-friendly, have started to slow down. Meanwhile, I think from the political standpoint of things, politicians are focused on appeasing constituents across the globe. And we think that there's going to be the risk of a lot more policy errors in the marketplace. We've got our sneak peek with what happened in the UK with the mini-budget and just how quickly the guilt market got completely out of hand and you had to have 
the Bank of England come in and purchase government securities again and in the open market. So you're doing QE as you're supposed to be doing QT. I think there's certainly the risk in Japan with a new minister coming in for the BOJ. And I think that politicians are really going to have to earn their stripes. As we talked about before, post-GFC, it was spend, 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 and central banks are going to be there to ensure that the economy keeps muddling along at a minimum. Now, politicians are going to have to make hard choices, and I'm not necessarily sure I want to bank on them relative to corporate CEOs. That makes sense. Some that I was thinking about when you were talking about you know, the Bank of England and having to do QE. I want to sort of preface this question by saying like when I, I have allocated to managers in the past that have held cash and I have kind of thought like, that's not really your job. That's my job. So that's where I'm coming from when I ask this question. How are you thinking about whether or not the Fed's current position, like how widespread could get? And are you concerned at all from like a mark to market basis with deploying capital or is your theory like, look, we have capital in the door, our job is to invest it, and we are through cycle no matter what. We just need to minimize credit losses and things will take care of themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, we run a number of different strategies. Some we use cash as a portfolio tool and others where we're effectively benched against an index and an asset class, then we're going to keep a reasonably low amount of capital. I think that our marketplace is one that lends itself actually to holding excess capital because it changes so quickly. And those liquidity dynamics are particularly challenging. Liquidity has really dried up in our marketplace post GFC and then really post 2014 as well. And so we get paid handsomely to provide liquidity in the marketplace. There is that ability to generate excess returns through holding cash and being that liquidity gateway in a market where we think we have information and analytical advantage. And so typically what we're thinking about, and this comment is much more around the mutual funds that we manage, they're open end and investors require daily liquidity and we provide daily liquidity. So you have to have a cash buffer at a minimum to handle any redemptions and also to be aware of the subscriptions that you're taking. So rule number one, from our perspective as open-end vehicle managers is it's your cash. You do with it as you please. So if you're looking to redeem, then we've got to have cash on hand to handle that. And we bake in a lot of liquidity sources. So we never have to be a liquidity taker in the marketplace. So cash is one component of it, but we'll own investment grade securities, we'll own short duration securities that, you know, again, we think don't change in price meaningfully. And the vast majority of market environments. And we're consistently paying attention to the market and looking at absolute and relative value opportunities. So we have a healthy cash balance relative to, I think, our competition over most cycles, but we will quickly deploy when we see opportunities in the marketplace that are technically driven. And and that technical aspect is typically liquidity coming in or going out of the market. So when it's coming in, we're selling into strength. And when it's going out, we're buying into weakness. 
And the interesting part of our marketplace is just that impact that passive capital has and how we can see it reflected on a day-to-day basis because the ETFs aren't anywhere near the size that they are in equity markets, but their underlying impact on the marketplace is extremely high because they are forced buyers and sellers. They're replicating an index, you take capital in, you've got to buy something, you've got to buy your index, you lose capital, you've got to sell something, you've got to sell your index. And their typical way of accessing this liquidity is through sending out creation and redemption baskets. This is all transparent. So as a money manager, I can see what the ETFs are looking to do. You can look at whether or not they're trading at a premium or a discount to their net asset value. And so you can ascertain what side of the market they're going for. And we see where they're looking to source or take liquidity. And we're happy to be on the other side when we have this kind of analytical and information advantage because we know exactly what they're willing to pay Hmm. for security or where they're willing to sell based on that premium or discount to NAV. Interesting. How does that work? I'm I'm sorry to ask such a basic question, but I don't know how the premium or discount to NAV would impact where they're willing to buy or sell. Well, it's the authorized participants that are transacting on behalf of the ETFs. So if you're trading at a premium, if I'm an authorized participant, I want to go buy the cash bonds and I want to sell the ETF, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I can collapse that discount. Okay, right? it's, it's basically like an arbitrage transaction. It's literally arbitrage. Okay. And so this basket, depending on what ETF you're dealing with on what day, could be 50, 100, 200 names, but it's observable. And where we live in the marketplace too, with somewhat of kind of the smaller off the run types of securities, if you're trying to complete a entire basket, maybe you've got 99 out of 100 names and you need that 100th name. So you're less price sensitive there. Oh, interesting. And that's where we can really take advantage of some of those things is being the liquidity fulcrum in a position where somebody else isn't a willing buyer or seller. We can be when we think that we are getting paid handsomely relative to where we think the intrinsic value of security is. Because we know that today, an ETF's taking money in and they want to buy, and tomorrow they're getting money out and they want to sell. Yeah. You, you can rinse, wash, and repeat with this. Well, that's a nice thing for them to uh, have to provide to the market. Who's like a, who's your uh, perfect investor, I guess, is the way to think about it. I, I know that the answer is probably someone that doesn't call and has infinite duration, but if somebody likes what you've been saying and what this interview, uh, it resonates with them. Who do you think is somebody that should consider your funds? Can I even ask that question, by the way? Yeah, probably. I assume so. All right. Well, we'll send it to compliance and they can tell me to cut it if they want. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I'm just thinking about like from a duration standpoint, I know you run open end funds and I know that, as you said, like liquidity can come and go. But if someone were placing capital in this type of strategy what kind of duration should they be thinking about locking up capital for is kind of the question that I'm thinking about. Maybe I'm asking for myself. So in terms of how we think about managing money, we think about full market cycles. A cycle has shortened in length, certainly over the past 
couple of decades here, but you know, that's typically a three to five year type of time frame. I would say that again, the nice thing from our perspective with fixed income, the stated coupon and final contractual maturity is that if we are right in terms of avoiding mistakes and allocating to good businesses, so avoiding losers and picking some winners, we will win over time because the discounts will get collapsed. The illiquidity discount, the headline risk, the off benchmark type of risk, all that stuff will get collapsed as a bond matures or as the market coalesces around our viewpoints on certain risks. And so that can take time. It usually doesn't take three to five years, but we typically think about our holding period in somewhat of that type of time frame. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, uh, you know, I'm kind of done with the formal part of this interview, if you're okay with this. So I'm going to ask you, how the hell did you keep your head on straight in 2020? I was listening to some of the uh, interviews that you and Bill were giving, and uh, it was very like, you guys were right for the right reasons, and you were pretty calm. What was that like for you? I don't think I was calm. Maybe I was calm. Uh, well, you portrayed yourself as calm. <laughs> I was calm talking to shareholders. I mean, that's really like, it's a combination of two things. It's having a strong partner at work, which Bill is a fantastic partner. Bill Zox, who's my co-portfolio manager on the strategies that we manage. He and I have worked together for, at this point, almost nine years, and we effectively finish each other's sandwiches. So having somebody that you inherently trust, not only from an investment making decision, but also as a person is critical. And so he was fantastic. And all of the investment team that we worked with was fantastic during that time frame. And then it's really also having a strong partner at home, not to really deviate from the investment side of the podcast. But again, having a phenomenal wife who was extremely patient and very much understood the severity of what was going on in markets and contextualizing that relative to kind of what was going on in the world as well with a couple little kids at home. I think having two little kids at home helped ground how serious things were. And if I had made a mistake at work, which you do basically every day at this point, uh, you make some mistakes, but you come home and uh, your kids are smiling and happy to see you. I think that really helped in terms of maintaining some stability in a very, very violent market. It's going to be interesting. I, you know, I, I think from a COVID perspective, one of the takeaways that a lot of us had is how nice it was to be around family. And I hope that that sticks over the long term, right? I think that that was one of the few really big benefits to society that came out of that whole fiasco. So we'll see. I don't know, man. But uh, I think Charlie Munger's advice to marry the right person is the single most important thing. I don't think Charlie's the only person that's ever said it, but it's a game changer, man. When you can count on your partner at home, it's completely different. I would be nowhere without my wife. Uh, she is definitely my better half. Yeah, I feel the same way. You think that's just like a man thing? You think that we're just like inherently the anchor? Or you think that that's, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, all my friends say the same thing. <laughs> I, you know, I just think um, my wife is incredibly supportive and incredibly empathetic and also will call me on any of my bad behavior as well. So incredibly grounding, right? Yeah. In this business, you develop an ego if you don't have one. 
it's very easy to get lost in kind of the market and, and the day to day and having somebody that can pull you out and say, hey, here's your responsibilities right now. And that's me and uh, the family here. Yeah. I think that's something I need to work on a little bit is uh, being able to get a little more present. But I tend to agree. I developed a little bit of an ego. And then the nice thing about the market is it'll kick it right out of you just as you get it, too. So uh, now uh, I'm rebuilding it, but hopefully in a healthier way. Incredibly humbling. This market really over the past three to four years has been incredibly humbling. Every time I think we're doing something right as a team, something changes, right? And so the most challenging part is to be right for the right reasons. The worst is to be wrong for the right reasons. Yeah. Where you can certainly go back and second guess. But yeah, absolutely a very humbling marketplace. It's interesting the next time that people are on average saying, just look 10 years out, I'm going to try to remind them, do you remember what 2018 to 2022 felt like and how long 10 years? Like that's only four, right? Like 10 years is a really long time. Absolutely. The rate of change of everything. I mean, I think that encapsulates as a society, rate of change is rapid. We're going through a fundamental shift from globalization to deglobalization. Technology is advancing at an incredibly fast clip. So I think shortening cycles make sense. I'm not saying I want to be the microwave generation or the Twitter generation, but shortening cycles is important here. And I, I think that's the challenging thing, again, of running open-end capital is that your time horizon is the shorter of yours and your end investors. Yeah. And so we have to be very cognizant of that as well, is that the leash that you have as a manager is shorter today than it was five to 10 years ago. Yeah, that's a tough juxtaposition when there's edge in thinking long, I believe. I think that there's a 60% probability that's right, maybe 70. And then meanwhile, the leash is getting tighter. It creates uh, an interesting tension. Absolutely. It's interesting, particularly in fixed income, not many people really avoided the carnage this year. It was pretty hard to avoid. Generically speaking, there wasn't a magic bullet or a rock to hide under. But Bill and I were talking about this and we said, well, most logical explanation is that the people that would have avoided it got stopped out in one of the last 10 cycles that they were too conservative in. Yeah. What was it like running your strategy over the last 10 years? It must have felt like, well, every day seems like rates are sort of um, suppressed and spreads get tighter. It must have been really frustrating. Yeah, it's changed and evolved pretty meaningfully over the past decade. There have been meaningful changes in terms of market structure and how the market transacts. If you go back to pre-GFC when you had CDS, liquidity was as plentiful as you could possibly think. And it was very easy to move around in markets. And certainly that's changed as we've eliminated prop desks. And as our market has gotten more transparent, it's kind of funny. Transparency's actually bad for liquidity. Why is that? Well, the cynic in me would say that uh, Wall Street can not make as much money off of us at this point in time. And so if it's less profitable, they're going to be less engaged in providing liquidity. Okay. The way to think about it is kind of how our market works. There's something called Trace, which is a trade reporting and compliance engine. And so if I do a trade with somebody on Wall Street and we decide to go buy 2 million 
of transdon bond. Well, that trade gets posted within 15 minutes of the transaction occurring. And therefore, everybody can see that that transaction occurred. And so if I'm a dealer, and let's say I shorted 2 million bonds to me in the past, pre-2014, that trade may not show up. Only the dealer and I knew that that trade occurred. And so the dealer would have days to potentially- Yeah, more time to go cover. Go cover. And also, nobody would know where they sold bonds as well. So they could cover Hmm. a point lower or two points lower. Now, typically the bid ask spread, meaning the price between where a bond is bought and sold is typically a quarter point. And that's even getting moved lower uh, through competition from electronic trading platforms like market access. So it's not as profitable. And therefore, we think that liquidity has become much more challenged yeah, that makes sense because the liquidity providers can't make as much just providing liquidity, so they disappear, and then you're left with market participants that either want to buy or sell, right? Absolutely, and so that's really led to new participants. Like I said, market access coming in. There's a number of other platforms, but they're really kind of the market leader here. And one of the big things that has changed in our marketplace is the ability to transact all to all, meaning we can transact on that platform and interface with another buy side counterparty. We wouldn't know who we were dealing with, but I think that as liquidity has dried up in the marketplace, people in my position on the buy side from an asset management standpoint have had to figure out how to pull in more liquidity sources because the sell side hasn't been as willing to step in. It's interesting how many pockets of illiquidity there are right now. And I feel like, you know, people like Grants were writing about this in 2018 and it just didn't quite matter. And maybe I'm misciting the year, but there have been people that have been saying for a while that liquidity is substantially reduced. And I guess it feels like it hasn't mattered, but it also feels like it's going to matter at some point in a big way. Maybe that's wrong. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I think. We saw liquidity matter meaningfully in March of 2020. And that's why, again, the Fed stepped in. I mean, the Fed, a lot of people like to criticize the Fed, but they get an A plus for timing and aggressiveness in March of 2020, which was the alphabet soup of programs to keep the market afloat, the unlimited backstop effectively in terms of buying across asset classes, you know, coming into corporate debt all the way down into high yield as well, which was a little bit surprising buying high yield. We weren't surprised that they were gonna buy investment grade, but having that liquidity backstop was important because you can turn cash into anything, but you can't turn anything into cash. And the problem in fixed income markets and even in equity markets to a degree as well is that people think you can. And if the market goes no bid, meaning nobody's willing to buy what you're wanting to sell, even at effectively any price, that leads to a lot of problems. And I think that the fragility of financial markets has continued to expand. And I think that you also are seeing the largest asset managers, in my opinion, becoming systematically important. Banks get regulated because if a bank goes, one of the large banks goes, there's real problems. But at this point, if you're managing, you know, seven, ten trillion dollars of capital, it feels like 
there could be some systematic issues at a point in time. Yeah. With a lot of the um, a lot of the bigger shops, there's a fair amount of leverage on the books, too. Yeah. Like, don't they lever to get higher returns in a lot of these places? I guess what I'm really thinking about is if liquidity decreases and somebody holds a book of credit and they're levered, I don't know. What are the knock on effects if we don't have people that are willing to step in and create the market? But maybe I'm making a bigger issue than it is. Well, I mean. I think it is very interesting to look at, you know, the easiest things to point to are really the ETFs. And as you dip down in terms of size, in terms of credit quality, the more esoteric you go, you'll see that in points of market stress, the premiums and discounts to NAV grow. And the question is, at what point could something break? Yeah. And I mean, we saw some pretty meaningful discounts. And these are in unlevered vehicles. Now, if you're looking at the closed end funds or some of these levered ETFs, there are the ability. I mean, we've seen uh, ETFs, uh, you know, the VIX ETF get unwound very quickly, right? So the, you know, short volatility trade, long volatility trade, you know, it's a dangerous type of game here when you're adding leverage. And I think there's uh, certainly from a regulatory standpoint, you know, I think we need to be careful about giving um, all the types of tools that we are giving to, you know, end investors. <laughs>